Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. It is Hardline here on News Radio 930 WBEN. Our first guest today is Erie County Controller candidate Lynn Dixon. Lynn, good morning. Good Sunday morning to you, Joe. Now, Lynn, before we get into the Comptroller's race, you know, obviously a lot still going on with COVID-19. I want to know your thoughts on how the county's been handling COVID-19, not so much last year, but over the last few months. Well, you know, I do believe COVID-19 is something that's going to stay with us. So uh, in whatever form. So we have to find a way to sort of coexist. And so that we, we can't continue to shut down everything and then reopen everything and shut down everything and reopen everything. So, um, you know, so we have to establish a way that we can continue to operate. You know, businesses can function. Schools can remain open. Lives can go on, but we still keep people as safe as possible. Uh, with respect to how the county has managed COVID-19, my biggest concern would be the money that was spent on overtime. Uh, I think that when you look at every other county and New York City and every other county in New York State, nobody is spending this COVID relief money, the federal relief dollars, on overtime. And there are some uh, Count in the county workforce that have made significant, I mean, you know, six digits, close to $200,000 in overtime alone. And I understand initially that it was something that, you know, you had to put a system in place and you had to, uh, um, you had to get the county prepared for what may come. And there were a lot of unknowns, uh, but we are, you know, nearly two years into this now, and um, people are still billing lots of money for overtime. And when no place else is doing that but Erie County, New York, that's troubling to me. The other issue I have, Joe, is with the, the federal relief dollars that came both last year and this year and the lack of public input on how that money was spent, especially the money that came this year. Uh, half of it has already been allocated to the county, and it was uh, it was decided how it would be spent pretty quickly. And there were a lot of communities that were essentially left out of how that money would be spent. And I know that there were some in the legislature in the minority that had put forth a plan uh, to have public input so that we could hear from various not-for-profits, organizations, and towns, municipalities that saw a real need uh, for funding in, in different places and allow them the opportunity to, to share their thoughts. And um, that 
that resolution that was put forth by some in the legislature was rejected uh, and not allowed to move forward. And that's unfortunate because I think that when you have this kind of game-changing uh, type of federal funds coming into Erie County, you don't want to just kind of, you know, spend it away without a real significant plan that could be money that could make a big difference in Erie County. And speaking of money, part of the job of the comptroller, the checks and balances of Erie County, uh, looking at overspending, and I think it's been, as you said, more magnified uh, during COVID-19. But I I think that is a top concern of a lot of voters, not only in the county, but statewide. But here in Erie County, just the overspending, do you feel on day one that is something you can really start to cut away at? You know, I think transparency and independence for the Office of Comptroller is so important. You have to have independence. You cannot be afraid to shine a light where there needs to be light, you know, where there needs to be light. You, you cannot be afraid to sort of call people out when necessary. That doesn't mean it has to be a political office. In fact, I think it should be a good government office, you know, that that the controller's office should at the very, you know, at the end of the day, its number one concern should be about good government and operating government efficiently, effectively, being the taxpayer's watchdog, uh, providing that checks and balance. And that, to me, is the most important function of the controller's office. And if that includes, yes, and it would include how COVID money is being spent, how federal relief dollars are being spent, it's very important to have that independent voice that can highlight and at least share with the taxpayers what exactly is going on. And if taxpayers approve of it, then that's their prerogative to approve. But if they disapprove, then you know, then they have that right too. But at least they need to be, you know, to be um, made aware of how the money is being spent. Lynn, you uh, you discussed the 25 areas that you think need to be uh, addressed from the comptroller's office. We we obviously know with with COVID and what's been going on. What are some other parts that the voter might not be so aware of that you really think needs some kind of reform, some kind of check in on? Sure. I and you know I would like to say that I am the only candidate in this race that has actually put forth a very specific plan for the controller's office and how I would like to see um, it operate. Uh, a couple of the suggestions that I have, a couple of, of my uh, 25-point plan points are, um, for one thing, property tax payment reform for seniors and small business. Um, right now, you know, when seniors on a fixed income and the property tax bill comes due, it can be very difficult uh, for them to pay it. If they were allowed to pay it over a period of a year, every month, um, and they have done that in other, in other counties and other communities in New York State, um, that would provide them some relief and perhaps make it easier for them to plan. In addition, so many small businesses were impacted negatively by COVID and they face those same challenges. If they were allowed uh, a plan that would allow them to pay those tax bills over, over the course of a year, over a stretch of time, uh, it would provide some relief to them too and perhaps make it easier for them to manage their budgets, manage their money, um, rather than having to pay this big bill all at once. So that's one of the things. Another thing is um, I do believe um, conducting the financing portion of the bill's lease in an open and transparent manner 
is very important, and that is something that I propose. Um, controller in the community and in the classroom. We go into the communities uh, and we, we sit down with folks about whether they need help uh, with something or, or they you know, want to learn a little bit more about the budget process and what the controller's office does. We would do that. Review the impact of lowering taxes on gas. Um, pr produce a report on what defund the police really means. Uh, there are a lot of things that are mandated within police departments that you cannot cut. So if you want to defund the police, right away you'll start cutting some of these programs uh, that are very important uh, to people who are incarcerated, uh, who, you know, who are like sometimes, for example, when somebody perhaps has an issue, uh, has a drug problem, and um, they have the ability, you know, this, this um, even like the, the, the bail reform, you know, they have the ability to, the courts can work with them so that when they go behind bars, um, they can get some assistance right away to detox, but then they can be paired with an organization or with help immediately. A lot of those people, if they don't have that, if there's not that way to get them, uh, you know, into this recovery process because they're not allowed to, um, then they're harmed. So um, that's another thing that I would like to do. Um, I, you know, I put forth some other ideas about reviewing the 1977 sales tax sharing agreement. That's not to say that we blow it up, but it is to say we take another look and is it still working as we, as all the communities involved in it expected it would. I mean, it's been since 1977. So I think anytime you have an agreement that that's old, it's worthwhile to take a look at again. Um, there are some, the whistleblower protection uh, law, we have a whistleblower hotline, and I hear from folks within the county all the time that are concerned with things that they see happening, that they fear retribution, and so there has to be better protections for them. I would restore the division of reporting that used to be in the controller's office but has not existed since red-green budget crisis. Really what that is is just preparing regular reports for use by the county departments and the legislature. Uh, we have a great general ledger accounting system. You know, we can, we can provide uh, great reports on sales tax collection and spending. We can on the department spending, on risk retention, bond ratings, overtime. So I think so, those are just some of the things. And, and another, another plan within my 25-point plan, the certificate of residency, as you may know, if somebody chooses to go to a community college outside of Erie County, uh, the county has to pay for that student, uh, has to pay that, 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 uh, that county uh, for their student going outside of Erie County for school. Um, and we see a lot of that, and the increase in the um, the cost that we have to spend has increased about a million dollars or so over the course of the last few years. What are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? Um, we we talk to those students, we capture them when they're coming in to get their certificate of residency and find out uh, what is not attracting them to community college here, and you know that might be a great blueprint to help ECC in terms of doing a better job recruiting students and keeping students in Erie County. You know that last one—that's the first I've heard of that. So if you go to a community college that's not in Erie County, that is on the county to um, provide funding to another county. Yes, and that that has gone up. The cost of that has gone up significantly over the course of the last few years. And so taxpayers are on the hook twice. Uh, they, they 
it's you know within the county budget there's there's money allocated for ECC uh, but then the, these communities have to pay again and I I would say you know we put we put together a report in the controller's office that highlights how much every town pays out uh, annually and how much it's gone up and we do have that on, on the website but um, it's it's a significant chunk of change and so I think it, it could benefit Erie Community College as well because, you know, we are losing a lot of students in Erie County to other community colleges, and it's costing Erie County taxpayers, and it's costing them twice, really. So, um, so using that opportunity when the student comes to get their certificate of residency to go to a community college elsewhere, we can put them together with perhaps a, with, with ECC and have them sit down and make sure that there's nothing at ECC offers that would fit for them and and it would I think provide some insight also to the college uh, to you know to take a look at what programs they're offering and maybe um, work to do what they need to do in order to to have students attend ECC and retain them and and look it's you know it's community college is great um, it's 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 provided great education for so many people and ECC has. And, um, but, you know, I think we always need to look at how we can do things better. Lynn, you also brought up the, uh, the bill's lease. What are some of your concerns the, with the county's role in the upcoming bill's lease and new stadium negotiations? Well, you know, I'm, look, I, you know, I am a bill fan. <laughs> I love the Buffalo Bills. I'm excited when they do well. I, you know, I, I think this whole, I think Western New York is so invested in so many ways in the success of the Buffalo Bills. And certainly it looks like we are going to have a great team again this year. At least I hope so. Uh, but it's, you know, the prospect of a new stadium is, it's an awful lot of money for a community our size. And if it's going to be publicly funded in part or in full, uh, although I do believe the Pagulas will be putting up some money, then it's your money that's being spent in these negotiations. So I think it's only fair than rather doing everything in private. And I understand you cannot negotiate in public with everything, but I think when you're talking about taxpayer dollars, your money that's being spent perhaps on, on a new lease, the, develop, the building of a new stadium, that it is certainly uh, the right of taxpayers uh, to know how those negotiations are going. So I think there needs to be some transparency with respect to lease negotiations uh, so that taxpayers better understand. And I will say this, uh, back when the, the last negotiations were going on for the bill's lease, at that time, uh, the county executive had put forth or put together a panel that was going to start and, you know, they said, we're going to start meeting now and we're going to meet regularly to look at what we can do to be prepared for the next time a bill's lease comes around. Well, when that group was impaneled in I don't know, 2013 or 2014, I forget, um, they met once, a total of one time. Um, so so this, this, this panel that was put together with the idea of preparing for what we are facing right now, um, and they only met one time, that you know didn't serve taxpayers well. Uh, we need to constantly, I mean, we know this is coming up every few years. So rather than you know just, okay, now we're here and now let's start negotiating, the work has to be ongoing. And if there's a panel put in place um, to, be, to prepare for those days, 
then they should be meeting on a regular basis to prepare for those days. So I do think the transparency piece of it is important, especially for the public funding function of it. Um, it is your money and you deserve to know um, how those negotiations are going and how your money is, is how they're planning to spend it. Lynn, you also mentioned how, uh, you know, the comptroller's office doesn't have to be political, but as, you know, as time goes on, everything is political. The sheriff's office, the comptroller's office. Do you see any issues with dealing with the county executive, with dealing with whoever may be the next sheriff when trying to do your job as comptroller? Look, I spent 10 years in the county legislature, uh, and I was able to accomplish things, you know, in a bipartisan fashion. Um, I, I, I don't, you know, if, if, if people are willing to set aside their politics for the sake of the people, then we'll be fine. If people want to inject politics over people, then there's a problem. But, you know, party and politics should never, uh, should never rule over people in policy. I mean, people in policy should be the priorities um, for anybody in public service. And um, I would hope that whoever is sheriff, and I would hope that this county executive and whoever might be county executive next um, would be willing to work with me as controller for the better, uh, you know, Erie County for, uh, for, to identify efficiencies to identify ways we can be more effective, to identify ways of cost saving where possible, and to provide the transparency that is due uh, Erie County taxpayers. So I would hope uh, that the legislature, that the administration, and that the sheriff, whoever they may be, uh, would be willing to work with me. I've always been willing to work with those who are willing to work with me. Lynn, before we go, you are running against Kevin Hardwick, current Erie County legislature. Uh, what are your thoughts on your opponent? Well, you know, I served with Kevin for 10 years in the county legislature. And, I, you know, I would say this. Uh, I have been able to work with him. Uh, but I also think that, you know, motivation and, um, and independence are important things to discuss about why I'm running for controller. Um, I am not a political opportunist. I've always been an independent. I have never changed um, my party. I, you know, when I, I, um, when I was in the legislature, I said from the very beginning that I wouldn't serve more than 10 years. And when my 10th year came up, I didn't run again. I was always in favor of term limits. Uh, I know that my opponent said he favored term limits, but then wanted to grandfather himself in. Um, I know that we had uh, voted to, or we prepared budget amendments to cut the property tax levy, and he was with us one day, and two days later he was not. So, you know, I think that when you're running for office, you have to look in the mirror and say, why am I running for this office? And for me, it's not to, to satisfy me personally. It's not, I don't make deals for me personally. What I'm, I'm running for office for, um, to, to serve the public, not to serve me. And I think that's, um, that's an important point to make uh, because it's, it's how I've always viewed uh, my role in public service and as I will continue to do so. 
And Lynn, I do have one more question, uh, not related to the race, but Kathy Hochul, local Western New Yorker, uh, now the governor of New York State. What are your thoughts on Kathy Hochul's first few weeks as governor? Well, you know, I think that um, it was no secret that Andrew Cuomo was a vindictive guy and he was a vindictive governor and he uh, he could be a bully. Uh, so I think that that set a terrible precedent and tone uh, in the governor's office uh, that that many people, you know, operated in fear in fear of retribution. And that, and, and that should never be how government functions. Um, so. You know, having a Western New Yorker as governor is is not a bad thing. It's you know, it's it's nice when uh, you can draw attention to Buffalo and Erie County and Western New York. Um, I, time will tell, uh, and um, you know, hopefully, she will uh, not forget her roots and she will remember where she came from and her beginnings and the people here and what we expect in Western New York is not necessarily always what New York City expects. And so there is a great balancing act there. And uh, I think sometimes in the past, Western New Yorkers felt that they were left out of the equation. And I hope that uh, with having somebody from here as governor, that she won't forget uh, Western New York as part of the equation. That was Lynn Dixon. She is running against Democrat Kevin Hardwick for Erie County Comptroller. You will hear Dr. Kevin Hardwick next week on Hardline. Coming up next, we talk with Dr. Tom Russo from the Jacobs School of Medicine here on Hardline on News Radio 930 WBEN. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast
All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Line here on News Radio 930 WBEN. Joe Beamer with you. And last segment, we talked with Lynn Dixon. Her challenger, Kevin Hardwick, will be joining us next week. So uh, you won't want to miss that as we continue to break down the elections. But on Thursday, we heard President Joe Biden lay out his six-point plan at combating COVID-19. And to discuss that and other things going on is Dr. Tom Russo, Chief of Infectious Disease at the Jacobs School of Medicine. Dr. Russo, good morning. Good morning, Joe. Now, Dr. Russo, we heard uh, the president on Thursday talk about this plan to get employ- employers to either have their employees vaccinated or get tested once a week. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Obviously not politically, but as a doctor in this push to get those unvaccinated uh, individuals vaccinated. Well, Joe, as you know, I'm a fan of vaccination, man. You know, if the world was vaccinated right now, this pandemic would be over. And though we've made some significant gains in vaccination rates as of late, there's still a significant minority that is yet to be vaccinated. Uh, And as a result, we're continuing to have cases, hospitalizations, and unfortunately, uh, bad outcomes, which almost all of that is primarily occurring in the unvaccinated. So getting those Individuals vaccinated uh, will be not only critical for their own personal health and save lives, but it'll also be important for the community, driving cases down so we could really get back to normal, which we'd all like to do. You know, Dr. Russo, uh, this is a point that I've continuously made, and it's the messaging out of it doesn't matter the administration, this one, the previous one, uh, the county government, um, you know, Joe Biden said that the unvaccinated are getting in the way of the vaccinated. And I I thought saying that in a push to get people vaccinated was interesting. Is this number of unvaccinated people posing a threat to vaccinated individuals? Well, there's certain vaccinated individuals that are at risk for uh, resulting uh, in hospitalization and having a bad outcome. And those are our immunocompromised individuals. And those are our most elderly and frail uh, where they might not have had an optimal response to vaccination. So even though they're fully vaccinated, if they subsequently get exposed to the virus and infected, they do run an increased risk. However, if you're younger and healthy, it's important to point out that if you're fully vaccinated, though you are at risk perhaps of getting a, uh, you know, a common cold or a relatively truly infection or asymptomatic infection, you're largely protected from hospitalization and a bad outcome. However, you know, this virus has been unpredictable and nothing is guaranteed. So what we'd like to do is, you know, try to minimize the number of ongoing infections in our community, which then will afford an overall higher degree of protection for everyone. 
looking at the um, booster shot discussion, we've heard this out of the administration for the last few weeks. We know those who are immunocompromised are starting to get their uh, third shot, their booster shot. What is the timetable for the average uh, American who's gotten both shots, say Pfizer or Moderna? Uh, What would be the average uh, time that they would need to get that booster shot? So this is an area right now of uncertainty. To be clear, uh, the booster shot, or as people like to call it, a third shot to really sort of complete the immunization series that could result in optimal degree of protection, first needs to be approved by the FDA and CDC. And the CDC is meeting next week on the 17th to discuss uh, uh, who would be most appropriate to get this third shot Uh, outside of those immunocompromised individuals, uh, if any. What I expect they'll probably suggest is uh, our most elderly individuals. There may be sort of an age cutoff here. Uh, A lot of people are discussing 65 and up. uh, And those that are somewhere between six and eight months out from their initial vaccination. Uh, However, uh, it remains to be seen exactly what's going to be recommended at this point. I think what we need to realize, what's important in consideration of this third shot, is we want to give this third shot to individuals that are at risk for getting hospitalized and having a bad outcome. And though we're still sort of learning exactly which group that is, at this time, the fully vaccinated individuals that end up in hospital uh, and uh, may die despite being fully vaccinated are the immunocompromised, which the third shot has already been approved for, and uh, our most elderly, particularly those that are frail with underlying diseases, and then some number other individuals that are younger perhaps, but have also a significant number of additional diseases, uh, including uh, obesity, underlying heart and lung disease, et cetera. Uh, so, you know, exactly which group to identify without making it too complicated is going to be a little tricky, but that is uh, the task that's at hand for the uh, CDC advisory group, and we look forward to see what they come up with next week. For the average healthy person listening to this show right now that might be planning to go to a party this afternoon um, who is completely vaccinated, should they feel safe going out uh, this afternoon? They should feel relatively safe. You know, our vaccines are not perfect. Everyone's heard about the breakthrough infection. But if you're fully vaccinated and you're otherwise healthy and uh, relatively young, worst case scenario is an asymptomatic infection or uh, a mild infection similar to the common cold. Uh, It's also important to note if you're fully vaccinated, those, quote, breakthrough infections that we've heard so much about are much, 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 much less frequent than infections that are occurring uh, in the unvaccinated. Uh, so at this point, if you're fully vaccinated, though our vaccines aren't perfect, and uh, you're young and healthy, you should feel like you're in pretty good shape at this point. Would, uh, talking about breakthrough cases, you know, we hear this, this term breakthrough case, breakthrough case. When you see someone who's been tested, who's vaccinated, who's positive but asymptomatic or positive and has a mild case, is that really a breakthrough case or is that the vaccine working? Well, it's sort of both, Joe. You know, it's semantics, right? It is definitely the vaccine working, right? It's converted a potentially lethal disease to the common cold. And that's really what we're asking for in our vaccines. You know, I think this expectation that if you're vaccinated and you're absolutely 100% protected from 
ever acquiring the virus uh, in, in asymptomatic form or a mild form is totally unrealistic. Our vaccines were designed really to keep us out of the hospital and prevent bad outcomes. And that's really what they've been doing to date. And so uh, I perceive or I, 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 you know, look at our vaccines as being a tremendous success story. And uh, really the best vaccines out there uh, are our RNA vaccines. They perform extraordinarily well. They're extraordinarily safe. Uh, and, and so I'm really quite pleased how we're doing. We just need to get more sharks, shots in arm care and really close the deal on that uh, segment of the population that's yet to get vaccinated. You know, Dr. Russo, uh, tons of mixed messaging, tons of uh, misinformation. When we're talking about vaccinated individuals, you know, there's still that question of how do they spread COVID-19? Do they spread COVID-19? Where on today do we know about vaccinated individuals and spreading the virus? So we're still learning uh, about uh, this virus and each variant that evolves uh, it then forces us to sort of relearn what we learned about an earlier variant. So now the Delta variant is what dominates uh, this country, accounts for 99% plus uh, of infections. If you're fully vaccinated and you're symptomatic and infected, you should assume that you could potentially spread the virus to others. So you should get tested. You should quarantine while awaiting the test, and if positive, you should isolate. However, we also know that if you're fully vaccinated and symptomatically infected, you're almost certainly less infectious and will be infectious for a shorter duration of time than if you're unvaccinated and subsequently get infected. What's an area of uncertainty at this point is if you're fully vaccinated and you get an, an asymptomatic infection, have no symptoms at all with the Delta variant, then what is the likelihood that you can spread that virus? Um, uh, it's certainly less than if you're asymptomatically infected and uh, unvaccinated, but how close that number is to zero or if it's a significant number really remains an area of uncertainty at this point. Now, Dr. Russo, I'm asking this next question as obviously someone who is not a medical professional, um, but, you know, we hear COVID's going to be around for a while, COVID this, COVID that, um, kind of like the flu. You know, you get a flu shot every year. Will COVID become the same as the flu when it comes to getting a vaccine? And will it still be the vaccine we are getting now? Or will a different type of vaccine, maybe more similar to a flu shot, be developed to combat uh, other variants of COVID? Yes, it's a great question, Joanna. We really don't know the answer to that. Um, I think we're going to uh, learn about the benefits of this third shot in various groups uh, over the next several months, uh, whether then additional shots will be needed on an annual basis, a semi-annual basis, uh, every five years, really remains unclear at this point. And obviously, this is something that we're looking uh, very closely at. And remember, our goal with these vaccines is not to prevent all infections, but to prevent severe infections that result in hospitalizations uh, and bad outcomes. Now, whether the vaccines will be changed in terms of the, the code or the formulation that's presently being used as new variants evolve, again, uh, is uh, somewhat unpredictable. But it would not surprise me uh, in the future if we feel we need additional shots that the uh, nature of the vaccine or the code in those vaccines will be appropriately modified, uh, directed at what's sort of circulating 
through the community and the world at that point, sort of like what we do for our flu vaccines every year so that we can get optimal protection. You know, we know that uh, children ages 12 and up are approved for the vaccine and there are pushes to get our children vaccinated. For those under the age of 12 um, and we're still not seeing the vaccine approved, when do you expect that approval to come? And should parents be concerned with the time it's taking to get that approval? Well, I anticipate that we'll probably have the data, uh, subsequent evaluation of that data and approval sometime very late in this year or early in uh, 2020. Obviously, we would like to have a vaccine that we know is safe and efficacious in children under 12, but I think parents should be reassured, even though it's taking perhaps longer than many parents would like, The reason this is the case is because uh, appropriately powered studies are ongoing right now to ensure that the vaccine is safe, to ensure that we're using the correct dose for children, you know, younger children, uh, less than 12. uh, We need to exactly figure out uh, what dose is most appropriate. And, And so they should be reassured that the ongoing studies will be rigorous and make sure the vaccine is safe, effective, and the right dose is being used for the right age of the child. Uh, and it's going to just take more time than it took for the studies uh, with the adults. And, uh, um, but I'm fully confident that when those studies are finished and evaluated, uh, that we will have a safe and efficacious vaccine. It's just critical. We don't rush the process to make sure we do it correctly. Kids returned to school uh, last week, Dr. Russo. And what do you think of the precautions in place right now at local schools? And what do you see as that off-ramp to getting kids back to normal without masks? Is the eventuality that once vaccines are approved, masks will start uh, coming off at schools? Yeah, I think, you know, I think we're going to be living with masks for the rest of this year. I'm hoping 2022 is going to be a much better year, and we're going to see uh, case level plummet uh, uh, as we really get a critical proportion of the uh, population vaccinated, including uh, children less than 12. And and so uh, when that occurs, then, you know, we're not going to be able to eradicate this virus, but I anticipate it's going to circulate, hopefully, at very sort of low endemic levels and become seasonal, somewhat similar to influenza. Um, that uh, we will be able to uh, at least get rid of these mask mandates. Uh, And so uh, I don't anticipate we'll be living with masks forever, but right now they're obviously a critical tool, particularly since many of our school-aged children are not eligible for being vaccinated. And uh, those that are, we've only got about 50% of children between the ages of of 12 and 18 vaccinated as well. Uh, And so... Um, these mitigation measures are critical until we get through this delta wave and get these number of cases under control. You know, we see masks in schools, but throughout the county, throughout the state, uh, mask mandates nowhere else unless you're in New York City. Do you see in the coming months, fall, November, once we get to winter, uh, the necessity for some of those mask mandates to come back in other places? Well, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out, Joe. You know, in some parts of the country, they do not stop at masks, go straight to verification that you've been vaccinated before you could enter a bar. For example, Massachusetts is doing that uh, starting in October. 
and so, uh, you know, venues that are indoors when people are not wearing masks and if there's unvaccinated individuals in there, that's obviously going to be a situation that poses risks. Uh, and so eating and drinking venues, you, you cannot wear masks, and vaccination is the solution for that. Um, so I anticipate until we really get on the other side of this pandemic, and all pandemics will end, and so will this one, uh, I anticipate so a, a sort of a mixture of both uh, verification of vaccination status and or masks when they could be used uh, until we get there. And we're unfortunately not there yet, but we're gaining Speaking of uh, requirements, masks, uh, proof of vaccination, none of those things uh, necessary at one Bills drive uh, a few hours from now where there will be a sellout crowd. I was at a sold-out college football game last week in Blacksburg, Virginia. Uh, Again, no requirements needed. Um, If you are a vaccinated individual, should you feel safe in these settings? This is what I would suggest, Joe, for the Bills game. And, and by the way, I'm feeling very positive go Bills. I think this is going to be a great season, and uh, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, if you are fully vaccinated but you fall into that immunocompromised category or you're more elderly, I think you should still be cautious because there's some uncertainty in the degree of protection with your vaccine, uh, and so I would go ahead and wear a mask. Likewise, if you're unvaccinated, even though this event is outdoors, people are going to be in close quarters for a long period of time, I would also wear a mask. Uh, We know that there's going to be a number of individuals there that are unvaccinated, uh, and uh, hopefully people with symptoms will stay home. But even if you're um, asymptomatic, we know that this virus could be spread. Uh, And, you know, if you're unvaccinated and get infected, all bets are off with this Delta variant. And so... Uh, even though there's no mandatory masks, uh, and if you're unvaccinated, you can still attend the event. I think those groups uh, should be cautious and protect themselves, and likewise, they will be protecting others. You know, one one more thing. This might not be a, a big deal, but it's just something I was thinking. And since I have you on the phone, I'd like to ask, um, you know, we're, we hear about testing. And even if you're vaccinated and you're going to an event where there might be those in the high risk category, immunocompromised or even unvaccinated, you, you get a test to make sure that you don't put anyone else in danger. What do you think of these at home covid tests that we are seeing on store shelves now? Yeah, it depends on the devil's in the details with these tests, Joe. And uh, just to simply break it down, our most sensitive tests are PCR tests. Uh, Many of these home tests are are not PCR tests. They're these rapid tests. And so obviously uh, rapid tests, if they're positive, is meaningful. But if they're negative, it doesn't exclude the possibility you're infected. They're just less sensitive if it's a non-PCR-based test. And further... It all depends on the timing. And so if a venue says, yeah, you have to have a negative test, say, within, you know, two or three days, you could test negative, you know, uh, two days before kickoff. But when you're sitting, uh, you know, in the stands and kickoff time, suddenly you might be positive at that point. And we know an individual is most infectious sort of two days before they develop symptoms and or three days after they develop symptoms. And so, you know, the problem with the tests are they're, they're imperfect. Uh, you know, you could have a negative test and be infectious the next day. And so that's why vaccination ultimately is our ticket out of this mess and out of this pandemic, because that's going to obviously maximize the chances of individuals both not being infected and minimizing the ability to transmit infection. 
You know, Dr. Russo, uh, a year ago, I didn't think we'd still be talking about COVID, but I am happy uh, that we have the pleasure to still talk to you and uh, give us the updates. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. Yeah, always great to chat with you, Joe. That was Dr. Tom Russo, Chief of Infectious Disease at the Jacob School of Medicine. That is Hardline for today. Coming up next, ABC News looks back on the 20-year anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. Have a great Sunday afternoon. Go Bills. We will see you tomorrow here on News Radio 930 WBEN. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 